Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. Content warning. While the cult of Christianity often deals with tough subjects regarding religious trauma and other triggering topics, some episodes may be more explicit than others. This episode contains content that may be distressing to some listeners. This may include multiple mentions of self-harm, suicide, sexual abuse, or other intense concepts. Please only listen if you are in the headspace to do so. Take care of yourself. I know I have already given you a content warning. However, after writing some of my talking points, I want to reiterate these are triggering subjects that should not be listened to lightly. Um, consider your own personal context before listening. Today's episode is something I've been dreading in some ways. In fact, I was expecting this episode to be recorded and released much later down the road. However, this past week, I've been in a pretty tough headspace. Some might advise that when you are in a tough headspace, um, dealing with tough, emotionally exhaustive, and heavy topics could be ill-advised. That is likely wise on most levels, but I actually want to experiment with expressing some torturous uh, feelings and hopes that it crystallizes the issues um, and has potentially greater impact. When I first envisioned doing an episode on mental health, specifically the white evangelical cult's impact on the individual and collective's uh, psychology, I expected to have a guest on who has also struggled with mental illness, uh, hopefully slightly different than mine, or maybe even some kind of expert in the field. But upon further reflecting, I actually think intellectualizing the issue might take away from it. These topics are not a mere scientific issue, a mere spiritual issue, or a mere emotional one. These issues dig into the darkest corners of our self-awareness and self-expression. There is a time and a place for dissecting and diagnosing mental illness clinically. But I've decided that is not the only thing I want this episode to be. I want this to be an honest reporting of my experience with mental illness and how it was exasperated by the church. I have been suicidal since around the time I was 12. Now, there was certainly trauma that likely was a primary mover for that type of ideation, but I actually want to ignore some of that trauma at the start of this conversation for two reasons. One, it's not actually the general public's business what traumas I experienced as a child. Two, I certainly could not have articulated the psychological language that is more commonly used today back then. At the time, the only language I had in my inner and outer dialogues was evangelical or atypical homeschool speak. And I can't quite explain what it's like to be suicidal in terms that are unoffensive or comfortable. I do not know how to do such a thing, Um, but I do know how to specifically describe what it wasn't. At 12 years old, I wasn't particularly sad, or at least my personality could not be described that way. I was bubbly, hyper, obnoxious, obsessive, and starting to, through cringy trial and error, find my sense of humor. Around this time, my family had changed churches, which led to my quote-unquote falling in love for the first time. I would now characterize those feelings as puberty with limited sex ed, And uh, around the same time, the internet became increasingly a place for socialization. Um, And you do not have to be even an amateur psychologist to see the perfect storm coming. 
You have the stressors of puberty, changing churches, and the internet. It sounds like an unideal atmosphere. But again, I want to challenge the temptation to reduce or even label my experience as a logical chemical reaction to a chain of events and type of environment. I do not think that's a bad thing to do, but I do think it is a monolithic and intellectualized approach. As I lived it, the beginning of my suicidal feelings felt separate from my experiences. As many others who struggled with this ideation will describe, it feels more like a cloud over your head that will not go away. It feels like the ending of your story has been spoiled, so you lifelessly carry along disinterested in the narrative that is unfolding. Further, when you're 12, it feels like you're the only person who has ever felt this way. For better or worse, MySpace allowed me to understand that I wasn't completely alone and that, indeed, there was some sort of global emo culture. I like to think my feelings were not specifically intensified by screamo music and poetry about death and self-harm, and I'm likely right to not attribute my narrative to one particular subset or fad of the internet. However, in all fairness, the vivid descriptions of people self-harming online was probably a factor, um, and where I maybe got the the idea to um, self-harm myself. And before we get into the specifics of my adventures in self-harming, I do want to spend a little more time on my suicide ideation. I think it is a common misconception that those who want to die so badly are simply um, self-esteem deficient. And I won't deny, I didn't always like how I looked, uh, or I you know, wouldn't feel as athletic as some of my sports teammates, and perhaps it didn't help my brain would like fixate on some of my flaws but the biggest factor in wanting to end my life was frankly just an honest examination of my surroundings my surroundings were a windowless room that i did my homework in my surroundings was a church where most of the sermons were centered on how unworthy humankind is of god's love especially anyone who didn't believe like we did You know, all my friends from sports and the local music scene, they all felt depressed or unloved by their shitty parents or abusive boyfriends. Those were the only kinds of friends I really had, and who wouldn't want an out? And in your pre-teen and early teen years, what outs do you tangibly have? I mean, I suppose a more metaphorical out could be an outlet, such as music or poetry, Um, And I certainly did turn to these things in a rather obsessive and maybe potentially unhealthy ways. But can something be unhealthy if it saves your life? And I can't know what is determined and what could have been, what kept me alive, and what I could have lived without. I do know from reading uh, my old poetry and song lyrics, it gives some insight to uh, the depths of my depression in ways that are disturbing, uncomfortable, and tragic. And I won't bother reading any of it, um, but I can summarize the general point of all my teenage writing in three fairly simple statements. I hate myself. I'm sorry to everyone that I exist. I want to kill myself violently and graphically. And as an adult now, I look back on this rather fragile and upset child and Wish I could give him even one of the many resources of which I am now aware. I wish he felt safe enough to communicate how he was feeling to a safe adult. And then I'm reminded that 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 perceptive little boy knew that safe adults were hard to come by. To be clear, my parents loved me and have since made it clear that uh, they wish they had known what was going on in my head and would have helped me the best they could, and I don't wish to throw them under the bus as I uh, tell my own narrative. However, my parents were neck deep in a church culture that exasperated and at times created my suicidal outlook. The church formally and informally told me that 
my only point of existence was to exemplify the love of Christ, which, according to them, was to randomly select a bunch of white people from rural Georgia to go to heaven and to allow eternal torture for those who believe different from us. And now that we're all so woke and understand this type of thinking that my church exhibited as toxic, it is tempting to blame them for the tragedy of my suicidal ideation. Don't worry. I'll do plenty of that later. For now, consider a first-person perspective more than a third person. Try to practice some emotional empathy with me for a moment, rather than mere problematizing. A young teenager is struggling to break out of black-and-white thinking and grow in their socialization and intellect. Every adult around him believes that there is no hope for humanity aside from an extremely narrow doctrine. For reasons he cannot explain, he wants to end his life. He is given one resource, this guy named Jesus. So he prays, he tries his best to be a little Christ, and it does not take long for him to realize that in order to completely emulate this character, he must willfully give up his life. However, according to this evangelical message, he would have to give up his life for the sake of others. So just wanting to die for your own pain relief is selfish or prideful, the root of all sin, the worst trait a human can have. So in order to make it all copacetic, every person in that kid's life must hate him. And that was the darkness. I had to convince myself that I was hated in order to feel less guilty about my suicidal ideation, because if I felt that way for any other reason, I would be failing as a Christian. This fed into my self-hate because I couldn't even desire death correctly. I'm not sure exactly when I first started cutting myself, um, but it is accurate to say that it was addicting. Um, I used to be overly descriptive when I recounted my self-harm, perhaps for shock value, perhaps for the sake of being detailed and specific. Um, these days I find it unnecessary to explain exactly how gruesome it was. I just want to use three words for um, the sake of broad categories of the self-harm I engaged in, um, just for accuracy's sake, and then I want to focus and expound more on the emotional elements, less so the physical um, events. I would cut, burn, and punch. And each of those acts are different, and self-harm does not have one reason, despite many popular psychologists trying to find a singular cause. I can only speak to my experience with any kind of confidence. Um, I self-harmed because it made my emotional pain physical and thus easier to manage. Um, perhaps most uncomfortable is I knew that's why I was doing it. I didn't go to therapy or Google this idea or read it in a MySpace post. I knew that I was making my emotional pain physical so that would feel easier to control. I viewed it as a practical outlet. I struggled, um, with knowing whether or not it was sinful. After all, my church wouldn't shut up about how evil the flesh of humankind is, Maybe it was a fair punishment for my tainted soul, and God would look favorably on me for punishing my flesh. And if self-mutilation was actually a sin, perhaps it could be forgiven more easily than the more stigmatized sins in evangelical culture, such as lust, pride, or, God forbid, non-belief. At the height of this habit, I would suggest it to friends as a way to cope. I had a phone call with a friend once where I actually said, well, maybe you'll feel better if you just cut yourself. That's what I do, and it helps. But that was a lie, though. A lie I believed, but a lie nonetheless. It did not help. I was still in pain. As I journeyed towards numbness and started losing sensitivity in certain parts of my body, my soul was ice cold. Sub-zero feelings may temporarily dull the pain, but they pierce sharply at the slightest jostling of circumstance. The high from the hit of self-harm eventually flatlines, encouraging riskier and more dangerous doses. I kept this habit hidden from virtually anyone who uh, would have intervened, and only told friends I trusted to keep it secret. 
I wore long sleeves in the summer and engaged in some other classic tropes. Um, But ultimately, on March 19th, 2010, for one reason or another, I decided to quit these forms of self-harm. Leading up to this, uh, I know that different friends had mentioned the pain it caused them knowing that I was self-harming. But that wasn't really why I quit. Um, In fact, one of my best friends told me he believed that I just did it for attention, uh, which certainly wasn't true. And I don't think uh, him saying that really helped my mental state. I I honestly just think that I wanted to quit. I was tired of it. I had self-harmed in one form or another every day for two years straight. I was tired of it. You know, I usually write a semi-hopeful, somewhat artfully written social media update on the anniversary uh, anniversary of my sobriety from self-harm, you know, uh, on the anniversary every year. Um, and the reactions and comments are all encouraging, and uh, I primarily do it in hopes that anyone struggling through self-harm will feel less alone and more emboldened to seek help or to find it in them to quit. I always make it clear in that post that sobriety is not easy, and I mean that. Um, nor am I existentially sober in the sense that I don't still find ways to self-sabotage or hurt my health. Um, while it's not currently a severe issue, I have an on-again, off-again relationship with alcoholism. Uh, I am an insomniac and do little to remedy my sleepless nights. I negative self-talk almost daily. Um, and I put myself in situations where I feel unsafe subconsciously. I still do things that harm myself. But I put the damn knife away, and I'm proud of that. And listener, if you've put any vice away in your life, I'm proud of you too. When I talk about being depressed and suicidal, I try very hard not to use past tense language. This is not because every day is as miserable as it used to be, though sometimes it be like that. I more just want to destigmatize and clearly communicate that depression and suicidal ideation are not unspeakable conditions. Whether you want to place it as a psychological, emotional, or spiritual problem, this concept must be mentionable and manageable. The darkness grows in silence, and I refuse to shut up about it just because of some weird, vague taboo. Fuck comfortability. Sometimes I would rather not exist. And I could launch into some disclaimers here. I could try to assure you that through therapeutic practices, willpower, or some vague hope of a better tomorrow, I'm doing okay now, and I don't want you to worry about me. And it is true, I do not want you to worry about me as an individual, but I do want you to worry about everyone who struggles with this line of thinking. Whether it's someone you know, a close family member, a friend, or even yourself, I don't want you to be anxious about these things for anxiety's sake, but I do want you to be motivated to care about these issues, and at this point I'm so desperate that I am fine if I have to break some hearts to do it. Suicide rates increased 33% between 1999 and 2019. There was a small decline in 2019, but suicide is still the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. It was responsible for more than 40 <clears throat> It was responsible for more than 47,500 deaths in 2019, which is about one death every 11 minutes. The number of people who think about or want to attempt suicide is even higher. In 2019, 12 million American adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.5 million planned a suicide attempt, and 1.4 million attempted suicide. Suicide affects all ages. It is the second leading cause of death for people aged 10 to 34. The fourth leading cause among people ages 34 to 54, and the fifth leading cause among people 45 to 54. And some groups have higher suicide rates than others. Suicide rates vary by race, ethnicity, age, and other factors. The highest rates are among Native Americans. Um, Other Americans with higher than average suicide rates are veterans, um, people who live in rural areas, and workers in certain industries and occupations like mining and construction. Young people who are lesbian, gay, or bisexual have a higher rate of suicidal ideation and behavior compared to their peers who identify as straight. And there are more suicides than homicides in this country. 
Thankfully, there are more resources, organizations, and general knowledge about mental health than when I was a kid, and I could not be more thankful for that fact. If you are currently in need of a starting point to either get help or learn more, I recommend Googling to write love on her arms or uh, going to wantatalkaboutit.com. But at an individual level, dear listener, if you do not care about this issue, search your soul and please start caring. Everyone needs to. This isn't something you get to opt out of due to lack of interest. And I want to be clear, if you are in a headspace in which you cannot do much more than survive, and you're ill-equipped or underloved and simply need to take care of yourself before you can entertain helping others with similar ailments, that's valid. And you honestly probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast right now, so I love you and go drink some water, please. However, suicide is preventable. And I'm tired and irritated that we have collectively shrugged off this issue in the mainstream. Yes, it is traumatizing. Yes, it will open wounds to discuss it. Yes, all of this is hard. But if it weren't for to write love on her arms, some important close friends, and enough safety provided by those willing to listen and destigmatize, I would be dead right now. I'm not exaggerating. Listen, I would be dead right now. And I was closer than those who love me need to contemplate for too long. As far as my current mental state, it feels like everything triggers me. Every time I see a white Ford Focus, I think of my ex. It makes me depressed. I spiral and then I want to die. Um, Every time someone talks about their grandparents or even says the word granddad, I think about how none of my grandparents are alive. I get depressed. I spiral. I want to die. Every time I see a guitar, I think about Austin, one of the best guitarists I ever knew, who passed away long before he should have. And I get depressed, and I spiral, and I want to die. I hear the word cancer, or plane, or COVID, or meditation, or therapy, or motorcycle, or Bible, or church, or knife, or rope, or divorce, or pastor, or sex, or bunk bed, or gun, or shooting, or nightmare. And I could go on and on. And the good news is that this mental state is no longer as permanent as it once was. You know, by the time this podcast is released, I'm sure I will have had some better days than I've been having. Triggers are fluid and never have to be permanent or detrimental. And I'm all for trigger warnings, and I do my best to properly prepare people for tough topics in this podcast and in my life. Um, Even so, such warnings can accidentally be misleading as a practice because not all triggers can be anticipated especially by those of us whose mental capacity is already compromised. Um, And this is why a society or subculture that does not respect someone's mental health needs is unjust, because all humans have triggers, regardless of how healthy their mental state. There's nothing wrong with having more or less triggers than the next person. That's just life. And yes, it is true that you cannot nerf the world or expect everyone to cater to your specific triggers, but honestly... I've never personally known someone who actually struggles with their mental health who expects that of the world. I think it's just angry, bitter old folks on social media platforms who think millennials are wimps who perpetuate um, that myth that we need to be coddled. And ironically, I think it's pretty cowardice when the old guard is so afraid of new language or cultural developments that they personalize and catastrophize it. Whatever. I digress. Becoming conscious of one's triggers is a good thing because it theoretically makes them less intense and you can plan around them. Even so, life is chaotic and not a controlled environment, nor can it be. So for those of us with a few more triggers than the rest, life gets tough. To awkwardly try to succinctly recap this exercise of describing my conditions in a less clinical or intellectual way, I struggle with self-loathing. I understand that part of life is hurting people, and I struggle to forgive myself for it. And I still want to die on my bad days. It, It would be tempting to say I haven't made much progress over the past 15 years. But objectively, that is false. Struggling through self-loathing is better than decidedly hating yourself. 
Trying to forgive yourself is a better goal than apologizing for your existence. And a vaguer internal desire for death is better than fixating on violent images of suicide. 15 years of micro-improvements. Wouldn't make a great slogan or t-shirt. In just 15 years, you could feel just a little bit better. But dear listener, forward is forward no matter the pace. And nothing can take away how far you've come. These are hard lessons, but they are invaluable. And I am not ashamed that I'm depressed and sometimes suicidal. I'm not ashamed that I used to self-harm. It's real. It's a part of my story, and I hope it's not a part of yours, but not because you're a worse person for it, but because you deserve better. I deserve better. I I don't always believe that for myself, but I sure want to. And I hope you also want that, even if you can't yet. Thanks to the internet and other factors, mental health is sometimes buzzworded, intellectualized, or reduced to a personality trait or identifier. I think we all need to slow down and sigh. I think we need to slow down and feel it. There is a real weight to the clouds overhead, and I don't think a TikTok or Instagram post is going to blow them away. I also don't think this podcast is going to save any lives. And I'm about to get started into a more academic-type style of dissection of how mental health, specifically suicide and self-harm, intertwines with church culture, specifically the white evangelical cult. Before I do, please evaluate your mental state. I, I trust you, listener. You know yourself. I'm not trying to condescend to you. But if you need a break or want to skip the rest of this, that's fine. If not, great, let's get into it. But whatever you choose to do right now, you're loved and cared about. After this ad, I'm going to talk about how you are not loved and cared about by white evangelicalism. In a world full of toxic Christianity, one man has elected to change everything. What's his name? No, what's his name? <laughs> oh, it's me. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm John Verner, son of Timothy Verner. That's <laughs> my dad's real name. God help the poor guy. <laughs> I'm just out here trying to tell people Christianity's a cult. Yeah, he is. And he's even written a whole freaking book about it. And now you can read all about his opinions in The Cult of Christianity by John Verner. Yeah, you should go buy my book, guys. It helps me buy Taco Bell. How we perceive ourselves and the reality of who we are is rarely identical conceptually. Perhaps more importantly, how other people perceive us is not necessarily indicative of who we are. The adage that perception is reality can be misleading. Confirmation bias, lack of data, and the limits of human consciousness all affect how we perceive ultimate truth. Perception is only reality in as much as perception is a prison that cannot be avoided. We can only deal with tangible experiences, and we would go crazy trying to conceive the inconceivable. That's a lot of existentialism to make the simple point that our self-image is a tricky subject. Imagining ourselves, um, building a persona, optimizing our strengths, and weaponizing our weaknesses is an unavoidable exercise that has only been exaggerated by the melding of audience and performer in social media platforms. We perform everything to each other all the time, rewinding the highlights at the end of the day in our memories. The social disease that infects us in ways we are not always aware of and likely ought to be fought with the vaccine of living in the moment. I mean, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Russell Brand, he, he says, liberate yourself from the idea that people are watching you. Because true freedom is found in not attaching yourself to any material person, place, or thing. In a more reductive and perhaps separate sense, one also has to learn how to properly love your own self. 
I have not accomplished this feat, nor do I completely know how. One thing I do know is that loving yourself is antithetical to the structure of the white evangelical cult. The supposedly woke evangelicals might think God does want you to love yourself, but they still predicate this love on understanding God's love for you. Humans only have value in as much as they are valued by the Judeo-Christian God. In other words, you are not lovable without their belief system. This drove me insane when I was a Christian, and this drives me insane now. It cheapens what love must mean. If I told you you could only find yourself attractive if I found you attractive, you would charitably exclaim that is slightly problematic. If I said the same thing about love, care, or value, it would be even more problematic. Yet, it is not found as problematic when evangelicals claim that it is true about God. If God hated you, you would be innately unworthy of love. So the two rhetorical moves they use to get around this problem is one, God is perfect, the author and finisher, the Alpha and Omega. Everything defaults to him. We know nothing without him, and thus he makes the rules, so we must define everything in life around him. The second rhetorical move, they'll say God loves everyone. It is humans that throw off the engagement ring, so we choose not to be loved. God offers his love freely to everyone. So let me deal with the first argument first. If there be a God, and he be perfect, and love doesn't exist apart from him, then myself, my non-believing friends, and some great people in history must have sinister motives for their extreme gestures of love. Every meal bought, house built, and hug given by agnostics, atheists, anti-theists, and Satanists is an illusion or imitation of God's love and must be specifically and categorically distinct from the ultimate and truest love supposedly found in evangelicalism. Clinically speaking, in the English language, love is divine simply as a deep affection. If evangelicals seriously believe that no one but them and their God can have a deep affection for people, places, or things, they are completely delusional. Further, having a deep affection for oneself likely goes beyond mere survival instincts. I am not within a mile of talking about some sort of problematic narcissism, which would require a lack of self-awareness, specifically a denial of flaws. A deep affection for oneself requires understanding flaws and enjoying the quirkiness of it all regardless, just as you would for a crush. And this is forbidden in white evangelicalism. I was not permitted to love myself. Even if someone told me I was allowed to love myself, I would have had such a misunderstanding of the meaning of love because love was redefined as evangelicalism itself. This is why the argument that says God loves everyone is not as positive as it sounds. If God loves everyone but refused to save everyone despite supposedly having the power, his love is not only by definition exclusionary and limited, but must be not be a guarantee. The type of love God must have according to evangelical logic is absolutely conditional. When this is the archetype you are supposed to emulate, you will love yourself conditionally, which is a fast track to hating yourself for not being perfect. No one is perfect, and no evangelical is allowed to love themselves. One of the hardest phrases I heard during the process of my divorce was, you cannot love others until you learn to love yourself. And as someone who has never truly experienced sustained self-love, I felt small and competent like a waste. Had I truly never loved someone properly? I would like to revise that phrase because I've known too many depressed and suicidal people who have had deep affection for so many. A better saying would be, you will struggle with having healthy relationships if you do not try to love yourself. It may seem like a subtle nuance, but the word choices matter. Again, you will will struggle with having healthy relationships if you do not try to love yourself. You can absolutely care for people no matter your mental state. Uh, What is much more difficult is having a sustainable connection 
without accepting who you are and learning to appreciate your own uniqueness and knowing what you want to maintain about yourself as well as what you'd like to weed out. That process needs to be fluid and entirely up to your autonomous trajectories and not based solely on duty ethics indoctrinated by authoritarians. I've always been good at critical thinking and wanting to be my own individual. However, the Christian cult encouraged me to replace my personal thoughts, literally demanded that I hold my thoughts captive to their specific interpretation of who God is. Loving myself was impossible in the cult. My desires were ugly, according to them. My jokes were disrespectful, according to them. Everything that made me who I am needed to be replaced with what evangelicals made Jesus out to be. And ironically, I think I would have gotten along with Jesus a lot better than most white evangelical pastors. Let's flip some tables and embarrass some uh, Pharisees. Uh, the, the hardest part of all this is withholding self-love can lead to the narcissistic and problematic behavior many associate with loving yourself. If you think your flaws make you undesirable, unworthy, or unlovable, the temptation to be in denial about your flaws will be higher. And this certainly happened to me in my young adult life. I did not want to face the skeletons in my closet, which only made them more animated and frightening. A fear of facing your problems will not make them go away, but will likely make them worse. And as I make more and more vulnerable decisions to explore different avenues of self-discovery, I still have not learned how to love myself. I'm getting closer to accepting myself, and I'm less engaged with intense self-loathing. But I feel a long way from having a deep affection for myself. I also know that I would be on a much different trajectory if I never left the faith. I was crafting a life based around messiah complexes, deep denial, dualistic thinking, and resigning to a joyless life of weaponized apathy. I was either going to snap inwardly, outwardly, or both. I hardly even recognize my personality from that time period. Even so, leaving the faith has not been guiltless. I sometimes feel sick to my stomach, like I've rejected so many foundational beliefs that I have no ground left to stand on. In more than one book, C.S. Lewis would describe faith as a house of cards that needs to be knocked down in order to be rebuilt. Uh, quote, God always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down, end quote. And while I don't think God is that active in most people's lives, I, I do agree that deconstruction is necessary for reconstruction. But it's, it's rather panic-inducing when I realize I'm not sure if I'm still in the tearing down phase or building up one. Do I need a wrecking ball or a crane? And this spinning out into an identity crisis is just a part of being 27 in 2021, I'm sure, but I also know it is aggravated by my existence being antagonized for all of my Christian life. Evangelicals got me convinced that the only point of living was to display the love of Christ, not any kind of love that came independent of my beliefs. And what a torture it is to feel like a chess piece, a chess piece that often makes the wrong move, and a chess piece that only has hope in being used as a game winner or more sinisterly. A mere pawn. In my evangelical days, I was worried that being suicidal was a sin. Nowadays, I'm worried that suicide is a painful choice that causes so much trauma that I must fight the temptation in order to protect others. The question that looms over my head, will I ever have it in me to accept, forgive, and love who I am? Honestly, this may be what scares me the most about the white evangelical cult. The neuropaths, the worldviews, the misconceptions, the hopelessness that is bred in these churches. It's hard to overturn or overcome. My fear for the children who are right now having mental health issues that either originated or are ignored or are inflamed 
by Christian culture, it breaks my heart. And I think sometimes my branding of calling Christianity a cult is received as uh, cynical lashing out due to my poor experiences. And I wrestle through my motives myself. Uh, But one thing I do know, I do not use that word lightly. There is a great amount of harm being done to people, children and adults. And I did not merely leave a faith. I escaped a cult and thus have to process whatever trauma I am still processing. Going to Bible college certainly would confirm anyone's worst suspicions. Uh, I and other alumni would gladly and repeatedly attest to the cult-like behavior at our school. The number of sheltered kids, paranoid about following the right rules, confused about basic educational concepts, and committed to evangelism above anything else, it clearly demonstrated the cult's power. The battle to love yourself after being in such an environment cannot be underestimated. But do not hear any gatekeeping in this. If you did not grow up in a religious environment, or maybe a less extreme one, learning to love yourself is still difficult. One of the struggles is simply figuring out the role our egos play in our individual lives. In an age of identity, we must avoid an era of ego. The part of the mind that mediates between the conscious and the unconscious and is responsible for reality testing and a sense of personal identity also seems to be the part of our mind that inflates our sense of self-importance. This is why the words egotistical and arrogant are seen as synonymous, though there is a subtle nuance worth noting. Being absorbed in oneself does not mean being happy with what you are absorbed in. Self-importance and even self-obsession is not the same thing as narcissism. Self-awareness can be a tragedy and unhealthy condition that leads to self-deprecation, self-hate, and even suicide. But but we have to be self-aware. While such an awareness does not absolve anyone of anything, it is a necessary first step in doing anything productive. Additionally, building an identity, especially in young adulthood, is both a pragmatic, uh, excuse me, pragmatic and ideological exercise. Finding out who we are is, in many ways, the great adventure of life. The trap, as far as I can tell, is assuming you must find the right identity. There is no right identity. This is not to say there's no such thing as right or wrong, which on my most nihilistic days is still a rather difficult dilemma. The important acknowledgement is that no matter who you are right now, you are worthy of acceptance, forgiveness, and love. I deserved that as a child and a young adult. I, I'll des- I deserve it now and I'll deserve it later. My resistance to accepting that I deserve such things is likely stemmed from an inflated ego and tumultuous relationship with perceiving myself as either a failure or at least not quite good enough yet. Um, And I am tempted to assume that once I find the right way to explain myself or identify, then I will finally have earned some sort of worthiness. And this is why when an evangelical is on their game and swoops in with the sales pitch that Jesus offers forgiveness uh, and acceptance and love all for free and accepts me despite any unworthiness, which is a free gift and it cannot be earned. When I hear that pitch, I want to bite the apple. However, that pitch neglects the fine print of lifelong servitude as well as the problematic piece that only an unseen, vague, unproven spiritual being must offer you the lifeline, and you cannot save yourself. It is fair to say we cannot save ourselves in isolation. But it is a dangerous myth that you are not capable of accepting, forgiving, and loving yourself. People do need other people. In fact, many people also need spiritual practices or effective coping skills to deal with their various issues. But you do not need anyone's approval except your own in any moral sense. Obviously, if you engage in bad behaviors, there ought to be consequences. You may behave particularly amoral in your life right now. Stop it. But also, you're not going to stop it if you merely shame yourself over and over. You need to acknowledge what you are doing is wrong, accept that you've done bad things, and accept the consequences. Forgive yourself and recognize that you are a human who will mess up. Sometimes in ways that surprise you. 
And you need to love that you are a capable individual striving to grow and do better. This is not mere therapizing. This is a central understanding of how to relate to your ego. Being attached to your flaws is no solution to them. Trust me, I've not mastered any of this. The only thing I have figured out is how impossible this kind of self-love is within the confines of white evangelicalism. You can absolutely try it, but the system will attempt to break apart the self-growth that isn't contained to the programming of their cult. In theology, uh, the problem of evil is the question of how to reconcile the existence of evil and suffering with an omnipotent, uh, omnibenevolent, and omniscient God. And there are many ways theists have tried to deal with um, this logistical issue. One point that is brought up from Christians is that suffering is a result of uh, the fall of man, which corrupted the perfect world that was created by God. However, this argument clearly ignores that God's omniscience is a thing, because surely a real God would have known that man would engage in the temptation, and if God is so powerful, why did he not protect humanity from itself then, but instead allow a world and thousands of years of suffering? A less orthodox Christian argument might say that forces of nature are neither goods nor evils, they just exist. Nature produces actions vitals, uh, vital to some forms of life and lethal to others. Other life forms cause diseases, but for the diseases, hosts provide food, shelter, and a place to reproduce, which are necessary, necessary things for life and are not, by their nature, evil. And while this circle of life feeling uh, does bring some amounts of temporary comfort, it severely neglects the more heinous types of suffering and uh, amorality. Uh, is no defense for immorality. Um, And another Christian argument is that the existence of evil provides us with a knowledge of evil, which makes our free choices more significant than they would have been otherwise, and so our free will is more valuable. In other words, you need the bad to appreciate the good. And uh, this simplistic cop-out ignores that in the Christian narrative, the first sin was eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God did not want humans to have such knowledge. So if that knowledge is a good thing, God cannot be perfect in forbidding it. And a fundamentalist Christian might argue that evil and suffering functions as a mechanism of divine punishment for moral evils that humans have committed, and so the inflictions are justified. However, this directly contradicts the explicit teachings of Jesus. And further, it's just a horrible way of looking at life. So Christians, much less those of uh, the white evangelical variety, have not found a satisfactory answer to the questions that the problem of evil evokes. In more academic circles, the point is acknowledged, and the fallback cliche goes something like, it is part of the mystery of God, we may never know this side of eternity. Well, first off, While I'm all for mysticism, a lost art in Western Christianity, I do not appreciate that it is used to excuse all the pain humans and animals experience. Further, this might be a more uh, acceptable sigh of defeat if evangelicals weren't so insistent that this God is synonymous with love. This is why anti-theists simultaneously, sarcastically, and sincerely refer to the Christian God as a cosmic abuser. It is abusive to claim you love someone while at least permitting and at most inflicting deep suffering in their life. Mental health suffers when traumas are stumbled upon, but potentially is even more decimated when one is put through long-term abuse. I'm still willing to see that God might not be abusive. He is merely presented as such, and thus humans are the true abusers but the splice might be used to sidestep the critique and muddy the waters. So, like, imagine a pair of, uh, a pair of parents decide to perpetu- perpetuate the myth that Santa, uh, that Santa Claus exists um, to their child. And as their kids grow up, they notice he's a bit of a brat. So some years he gets presents, some years he gets nothing but coal, 
Uh, some years he gets both. And as he gets older, he's told if you stop believing in Santa, when you die, you'll go to hell. He learns that most of the kids his age have stopped believing in Santa. And he worries for their soul. And then additionally, his parents claim that the only reason they love their kid is because Santa loved them first. Eventually in this mythology, the issue is not whether or not Santa exists. It is what is being taught about, the, about love to this child. Is Santa technically being abusive? Probably not. But are the parents using Santa to exhibit and teach abusive patterns? Probably so. Now, I'm not trying to be a jerk and say that the Santa mythology is the exact same as Christian mythology. The point of the analogy is to clarify that the intellectualizing of the problem of evil or how neglected mental health is in evangelical circles creates more problems than it solves. Environmental factors have a great impact on mental well-being both when you are a child and as an adult. When you are stuck in a program that coerces you into centering your life around convincing others that the only access point to truth and love is lifelong servitude to a narrow program, anything that doesn't fit in that constricting narrative will inevitably make you feel anxious and like you are a failure. In college, I took a class uh, titled Theology of Suffering. It was easily one of the best classes I took when, uh, when I went to college. And my professor would often repeat, there isn't just one problem of evil, but rather three circles in a Venn diagram layout that an individual will be somewhere inside when asking this question. The three categories that are important when dealing with this topic are the philosophical problem of evil, the theological problem of evil, and the personal problem of evil. You could also look at this as three different questions. Why does evil exist? Why does God allow evil to exist? And why is this evil thing happening to me? In class, we would explore how these questions often have different answers and notice that overlap is rare. Additionally, none of these types of problems deal with the problem of hell. And while this class was incredibly valuable in both my Christian and post-Christian life, we did not actually resolve anything, nor were we trying to. Accepting the evils that we experience as humans is necessary for functionality's sake and to prevent going crazy just trying to figure out all of this chaos. The bigger problem is uh, the Christian is forced to double-think, being resolute to trust God despite evidence that they should not. It is one thing to harmonize faith and tragedy. It is another to say the tragedy is simultaneously good and bad. This is the absurdity that evangelicals engage in. Somehow God has a plan for your life, and it is your fault when you throw a wrench in the all-powerful's idea? Somehow you are cared enough about to be either punished or rewarded, but not cared for enough to be enough in of yourself? A healthier mind might be able to laugh at this part of evangelicalism and carry about their day, but a more indoctrinated or devoted brain will suffer with frequent existential crises, even more if mental illness is thrown into the mix. Anxious panic, fixation on how to end suffering, or why suffering doesn't end, it only makes the most tragic of mentalities a predisposed inevitability. And to be fair, I do want to give the strongest theistic argument that tries to harmonize the concept of God with the acknowledgement of evil. The first presupposition is that if there be a God, it is a good God, despite there being evil in the world. No God can remove evil from the world unless that God wanted to. Since evil exists, that doesn't necessarily mean the God, that God is not powerful enough to do so, but may want to do something else of greater value in the world, or at least in his mind, than simple evil removal. And if this is true, no god would be culpable of being simultaneously evil and good, because a good god would always have a good hierarchy of value. So if there be a god, it is a good one, because it must have a greater value 
than removal of evil, and removing that evil must be less important than his greater purpose. Again, that argument starts with a belief in a good God. It is circular if you are not certain about God's existence, much less his or her goodness. However, it is worth pointing out that it is not crazy in a purely theoretical sense to believe in a God who is interested in something greater than the mere uh, removal of evil. The idealism is daunting if you have any sensitivity or, frankly, empathy to the large-scale and small-scale tragedies all around. But sometimes idealism functions as a safer kind of worldview than a postmodern dissection of a little bit of everything all of the time. That that safety is not always an uh, immoral laziness, but sometimes a precautionary fixation that keeps the mind from descending into absolute madness. In other words, belief in God can be an important resource. In uh, 12-step programs that battle various addictions, um, step three reads something like, we have made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to God as we understand him. Or as one of my heroes, Russell Brand, restates this sentence inquisitively, are you, on your own, going to unfuck yourself? The point is not submission to any deity. Any atheist can participate in the 12 steps. The point is that in life you need to make the decision at some point that you will have to accept help. Self-discipline, determination, and cleverness cannot be the only agents of change in your life. The human experience can be a lonely ordeal. I am not particularly trustful of people, and I hate being told what to do. I'm sure I'm not alone in wanting to be both the author and protagonist of my narrative, and in some ways I get to be, but in other ways I do not. Something conceptual like God, ultimate consciousness, the universe, or whatever the thing is that humans throughout history have seemed to be longing for, that can be a resource in that you can continually ask whatever that thing is for help. Eventually, the well of your uh, parental assistance, how many bucks your bestie can spot you in government relief, runs dry. Therapists should not be demigods, and pastors should not be overlords. It may feel like there is no guidebook in life, but that isn't entirely accurate. There are actually many, both secular and sacred. And while I will continue to believe Christianity is a cult, for some it feels more like an escape from one. And when you look around and it seems the world is only offering you fancy new phones to Uh, divisive rhetoric and low-level thinking, a faith community can be a savior all in itself. And there is something healthy about the theists that inherently acknowledges that they cannot do this all on their own. Now, I must interject and distinguish between uh, admitting you need help and believing you are not enough. You are not enough to be all the things you could ever possibly want to be. No one is. Um... What you can do is make impressive efforts towards any possible goal you have with a near guarantee that your achievements will be greater than what you could ever expect, and that is the tenacity of humanity. So you don't need other people, and you do. Another nonsensical, manufactured, subtextual nightmare that keeps me up at night. I'm not sure the English language will ever let me say all this quite right, nor the Hebrew language I'm vaguely acquainted with. Perhaps no language at all can fully articulate how we relate to God and others, or who God is, or what others are. Maybe to engage with the divine is comedy, and to engage with the worldly is tragedy. And when wrestling through the madness, some will have to have faith to get them through. I personally think it would be more ideal if we could survive without it. But I also recognize there's been times in my life where my faith got me through. I mean, my current perspective influences the narrative, so I more often label the fear of punishment, shame, and brainwashing to have kept me afloat through my darkest days. But perhaps there were some positives interwoven. And if there weren't, I don't want my negative experiences to make me prejudiced to others who report their triumphs. It seems many people need faith to survive, 
and I want those people to survive. And to be very transparent, I struggle with the question of whether I'm nearer or farther from peace, happiness, or hopefulness than in my evangelical days. The only word I know I relate to more now is freedom. I feel free. I did not used to feel free. And in some sense, being suicidal has been a pursuit of freedom. I long to be free of my mind, free of suffering, free of trauma, free of the memories, free of the anxieties. Evangelicalism promised me all those things after I died. Post-evangelical life hasn't promised me anything. You tell me which is worse. Theism can be important to someone's mental health. And atheism can be important to someone's mental health. And everything between can be important to someone's mental health. The white evangelical cult not only refuses to adequately educate its leaders and followers on the mind, but rather reductively assumes the only kind of peace is the invisible, unproven, sound-bit version of it um, that they supposedly sell. And against my highest hopes, there is no denying that evangelical dogma, both in its content and form, encourages unhealthy, hurtful, and masochistic worldviews. A lack of attempts to create safe spaces where vulnerabilities can be shared, accepted, forgiven, and genuinely loved discredits any rhetoric that may sound benevolent. There is passionate rhetoric against self-love and legitimate introspection in U.S. churches. Addiction, self-harm, and suicide are not erased in the church. And trust me, there are misleading articles in abundance about how church attendance reduces these catastrophes in young people. It is important to look deep into the studies referenced. Who's usually paying for these studies? And do these studies do any follow-up work once these young people, usually a wide range of 15 to 35, conveniently including a group that would reduce rates and excluding a group that would inflate them? Not to mention churches might consider gambling an addiction but not smoking a cigar. They might count cutting as self-harm but not anorexia. Like most of society, a church won't consider a drug overdose a suicide. So don't fall for these clickbait articles. The church can claim to be a sanctuary for the broken, but they are covertly and overtly and overtly a furnace for the wanderer. Valuing yourself becomes nearly impossible inside the cult. If you do something that is good, that's God using you as an empty vessel. And if you do something bad, that's your fault because you can only do evil apart from God. Damned if you do, and damned if you don't. And life is hard enough without being told you have no intrinsic value. Any suggestion that even hints that people have basically good instincts could incidentally dismantle much of the cult's work. This is why I could not function in any kind of mentally healthy way, and why thousands of churchgoers can't either right now. Churches are delusional in their approaches to the increased uh, mental health awareness in society. They'll acknowledge you have a purpose, but restrict that purpose to be in line with theirs, claiming divine authority. They will say you belong, but you don't belong anywhere that doesn't involve them, or at least their white evangelical God. They will say don't give up just because life is hard, but that you should give up your life to God because life is too hard. They will say you are needed because they need your ass in their seats. They will say you are loved, but they will not love you. Evangelicals have no ground to stand on when it comes to mental health. Or at least they certainly don't when it comes to my mental health. They have caused me enough problems. I'm not interested in their solutions. And maybe God heals, but his church harms. 
When I was in college, one of the few contexts I would even hear mental health discussed was in the context of the pastor's mental health. And don't get me wrong, pastors can quite easily slip into mental illness due to the weight of their community's problems, the pressure to be perfect, and the constant wrestling with spiritual and philosophical questions. Even so, boo-hoo, cry me a river, I'm tired of pastors getting care and attention that their congregants could only dream of. And further, pastors may believe that the church has a moral and spiritual responsibility to provide resources and support to those with mental illness, but that supposed belief has not translated into action. Churches are trauma factories, not refuges for the soul. And I'm tempted once more to finish my rebuke to the church by illustrating how much mentally healthier I am outside the church than I ever was in it. In it. Unfortunately, I more often feel like damaged goods who might not ever be repaired in any meaningful way. And I can't blame it all on the white evangelical cult, but I can't neglect to emphasize its impact. They put hell in my brain more than Jesus in my soul. So while I can't say my mind feels healthier, I can't say that I measurably exhibit healthier and more moral behavior than I did as an evangelical. And I can say that I don't dread Sunday mornings as much as I used to. I can say that my existential crises uh, don't involve yelling at demons anymore. I can say that I don't apologize for feeling suicidal anymore to God or to others. I can say I feel less petty, less stressed, and less scared. My mindset has evolved from mere hopes that I was behaving well enough to be accepted to hoping that I will learn how to accept the good with the bad. And my story is not a triumphant one, but it is a tenacious one. And if you're out there struggling with mental health, especially if you're still in the cult, I hope you have the same tenacity, and I'd love to hear your story. If there is any kind of moral God, my assumption is that he or she not only values humanity, but wants people to value themselves, regardless of their faith. And just as faith can empower and protect, a lack of faith in yourself can render you hopeless. That's why it's so heartbreaking that in evangelicalism, trusting yourself is prohibited. And the reason it's prohibited by the cult of Christianity is because your conscience and self-acceptance and self-forgiveness and self-love will likely lead you away from their authority. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to vernerbooks.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.